want you to turn to Genesis chapter three this morning and then hold your place in the fifth chapter of Romans. Genesis chapter three and then hold your place in the fifth chapter of Romans. I would, I would probably bet that everyone in this room is familiar with the slogan of the nasty energy drink Red Bull, right? Red Bull gives you, right. Peace doesn't need wings, so she doesn't know how to drink Red Bull. Turns out Red Bull doesn't give you wings. I don't know, if you, if you learn nothing else in church this morning, you've learned that because Red Bull couldn't escape because of that slogan and some of the other things they claimed, they couldn't escape a 13 million dollar lawsuit for false advertising. Of course, in their ads, they would claim that if you drank Red Bull, yes, it would give you wings, but it'd improve your concentration. It'd improve your energy levels. And a group of people got together in a class action lawsuit and sued them because there was proof that the caffeinated drink could not actually improve a customer's concentration or reaction speed. And so in 2014, they brought this case before Red Bull, and they won. It almost reminds me of the McDonald's lawsuit, you know? That now when you get a McDonald's coffee, it says, caution, hot drink inside. You would think that they would have known that Red Bull can't actually give them wings, but in the end, the court decided in the favor of those bringing the lawsuit, requiring a $13 million settlement, and you and I missed out, because if you drank Red Bull, since 2002 to 2014, everyone who claimed that they drank Red Bull got $10 a person for their damages. In a similar note, in 2009, Olay, the famous makeup company, was sued for an ad it ran in 2009 where they showed off a 60-year-old model in an ad for anti-aging cream. Turns out their model's skin complexion had less to do with Olay and more to do with Photoshop. Surprise, surprise. False advertising in the eyes of the law is a serious crime because advertisers often make claims, enough claims to get you to pay the cost for the product. And then as a consumer on the other side of that payment, you face disappointment. But this morning, there's a form of false advertising that I think hurts us far more than Red Bull or Olay makeup, and it's the false advertising you and I fall for every time we fall into sin. Now, there's a variety of people in here this morning, and it doesn't matter what type of sin you may struggle with. Because the sin you may struggle with is different than the sin that you may struggle with over here. But here's the reality. Behind all sin that we've ever committed is sin making a promise that it can't keep and you paying a cost that you regret later. And unlike the commercials on TV, sin doesn't come with a voiceover about the side effects you'll experience later. Our passage this morning takes us back to the moment of the very first sin. 
The very first instance of false advertising claims. And in the process, as we read this passage this morning, as we expound it together, God is going to teach us something about the false and bogus claims Satan tries to get you to bite every time you sin. He's going to show you and me. He's going to unmask the strategy of Satan. And you and I are going to see hopefully for another time, or maybe the first time this morning, why we struggle with sin. And I hope as you listen to God's words this morning in Genesis 3, that you won't just understand the tactics of the enemy, but that you and I will get a glimpse of the deliverance God offers us from our sin. I want us to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, I want you to see four things in this passage. The temptation to sin, the participation in sin, the disappointment of sin, and we'll end the message with the deliverance from sin. Let's open our word this morning to Genesis 3, verse 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat and the eyes of them were both, both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to see this morning the temptation to sin that we see in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. And as you probably read along, you notice that this temptation of sin begins with one of God's created creatures, the serpent, dropping subtle hints to get Eve to second-guess God. And there's a lot of questions we might want to ask about the serpent. Where did he come from? Is it an animal or is it Satan being used in a metaphorical way? And the author of Genesis, Moses, doesn't really answer those questions, but what he wants us to do is to focus on the strategy of the serpent. And what we see is that through the lens of the serpent, that temptation starts with doubting God's good intentions for us. Satan's strategy in this passage, or sin in this passage rather, happens in two stages. It happens with doubts, that lead to desires. And those doubts in this passage begin with the words of the serpent. But what we find is it's not just all on the serpent because Eve herself, as she's talking with the serpent, is doubting God's goodness to her as well. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago in Genesis 2, you'll find in Genesis 3 that God's words have been totally butchered in this passage. The serpent and Eve, by the way that they state things, 
make it sound like God is some restrictive, not fun, um, skimpy creator who doesn't give them anything that is good for them. In verse number two, the serpent makes it sound like that Adam and Eve can't eat of any of the trees of the garden. Well, we know in chapter two that God gave them all of the trees except for one. And then Eve responds in verse number three by saying, God said that we can't eat of that tree. But then she adds, almost to make it sound like God is more restrictive than he actually was. And she says, God says we can't touch it. And then you go down in verse number three, or sorry, in verse number five, and Satan's worst accusation is there. Because more than just criticizing God's rules, Satan makes it sound like that God has made up this rule because he's insecure and he's holding back on Adam and Eve. Look at verse number five. He says, God knows that in the day you eat, then your eyes shall be open and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You know what he's saying? You know why God is holding back from you, Eve? Because he knows that if you were to eat of this fruit of the tree, you'll become a rival God to him. God is just some insecure monster who's trying to keep you back from something that's good for you. I hope all of us know that these type of assertions and accusations are foolish. But friend, I think we all fall into the same trap and the same mindset as Eve and the serpent more often than we think. Because everyone in this room this morning can objectively, if you just stopped and thought, see so many evidences of God's goodness in your life. But so often the temptation to sin begins with us thinking that God might be holding something back. That every moment of temptation that you face begins with you thinking that God's boundaries are not good for you. That God, by setting out some rules, and he does have some, is holding back things from you that would make your life better. The voice in our head sounds something like this. You mean Jesus wants you to serve him as Lord for the rest of your life? How restrictive. You mean the Bible only allows certain things and you can't just go and party it up however you want and it only allows you to have sex with your husband or your wife? You can't look at pornography? Hey, hey, why would God not allow your dreams to be fulfilled? How come the one thing you've always wanted, God hasn't allowed you to have yet? And every time sin begins with us doubting the good intentions of God, rather than recognizing that God has been free and generous and has given us so much, sin begins with us narrowing down God's generosity and focusing on the things he said we can't do rather than thinking about all the things God gives us in the freedom of his presence. And if we're not careful this morning, Christian, the voices in our own heads will start sounding like the message of the serpent. But the serpent had a second doubt. He didn't just cast doubt on God's goodness. In our passage this morning, he casted doubt on God's judgment. 
Now, the words of the serpent are, are very brash and very arrogant and really defying God openly. But I think the most brash and open, rebellious words of the serpent come in verse number four, where he says outright something that the original Hebrew would have read like this. You will surely die? No way. You shall not surely die. He literally says that God has lied to you. God won't judge you. There won't be consequences for sin. And it's interesting to me, church family, that the first doctrine that Satan attacked is the doctrine of the judgment of God. And really that attack is still going on today. There's a lot of things people admire about Christianity. They admire our morals. They admire our care for the poor. But there's that doctrine of the judgment of God that most people want to just throw away because it doesn't really sound comfortable to us. But my friend, that attack is as old as the serpent in the garden. Sin has consequences. And if you come back next week, you'll see that those consequences are as obvious as the world around you. It testifies to the reality that sin has consequences. Sin brings God's judgment. But we must remember that Satan's not some lone actor. Your sins are not to be blamed on Satan himself. Because really in this passage... Satan may have initiated the temptation, but Eve is the one and Adam are the ones who carried the ball to the end zone. I want you to see their participation in sin in verse number six. Let's read it again together. It says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also under a husband with her, and he did eat. Listen this morning, Satan may have initiated the temptation, but Eve's desires are what matured the temptation. We all often think that this all happened in one moment, but the writing here gives us the indication that Satan said his piece, and then let Eve stew on it. I think a lot of sin happens that way, doesn't it? It's not that the desire comes and we instantly act on it, but it sits in the back of our minds and we meditate on it and we think about it and we start stewing about it and we become resentful about it and we start really thinking, man, life would be better. And what we get from verse six is that maybe she walked by the tree a few times. That does look kind of good. I mean, I, I know a lot of things, but it would be kind of nice if I could know more. I wonder what it'd be like to be upgraded to God's status. And so she saw, and then she desired. She desired. And what we see from this passage is that sin happens because of the desires inside of us, not because of the temptation outside of us. Isn't that remind us of the words of James in James chapter number one? That sin happens because of a desire and when the desire is matured or it's conceived, sin brings forth death. Does that not sound like Genesis three? Friend, can I just help you this morning when it comes to the false advertising claims? Our judicial system may recognize that those who commit the crime of false advertising are guilty of their crimes, but the Bible says something even more firm, that at the end of the day, you are responsible for your sins, period. 
You are responsible for your sins. Now, sometimes it can be helpful to track down the reason why we sin. Where does it go back to? Does it go back to past hurts? Does it go back to what we're seeing? Does it go back to our environment? But, but can I just help you this morning? It may sound harsh. It may sound maybe hurtful, but it's the most freeing thing you can accept in your life this morning. That sin cannot be blamed on anyone else but ourselves. You can't blame your sin on the culture. You can't blame your sin on what you saw when you were out. You can't blame your sin even on your parents. You can't blame your sin on your inherited sins. You can't blame your sin on your circumstances. You can't blame your sin on your financial status. The only one who sins is you. The only one who has full responsibility for the sins you have is you. But it's not only desires that lead us to sin. But I think what we have to recognize this morning is that this sin if we understand the story that's come before it, is full-fledged rebellion against God. Can we just do a little review? Because in the first two chapters of Genesis, God has only been good. You remember in Genesis chapter number one that God made the whole earth. And then at the very end of his creation, as the crowning point of his creation, he makes this creation called man. We talked about how God in chapter one, look back at chapter one in verse number 27, I believe it is. Sorry, verse 26. He says, let us make man in our image. And we talked about how when God says that, the idea there is that he is making Adam as a servant king. He's bestowing upon Adam a king-like status that really belonged to him. But out of his grace, he's bestowing that upon his creation, Adam. And so Adam was in charge of all of the creation. And not only that, Adam had a special relationship with God. In chapter number two, we talked about how Adam was in the garden. Look at chapter number two. I believe it's verse number 14, 15. Adam existed outside the garden, but by God's grace, look at verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden. So God took Adam from outside of his temple sanctuary, the garden, and he brings him into his presence and he bestows upon him the privilege of working and keeping the garden. We talked about how that really was pointing forward to the duty of the priests who would work and keep the temple. So here's a man who did nothing to earn anything and God has made him his son. God has made him a king. God has given him a lush garden to provide for his needs. God has put him in his sanctuary. And God has given him purpose. Pretty good God, right? Oh, it gets better. Chapter 1, verse 29. After the creation of the woman, God blessed them. I thought God had already blessed them. Well, apparently he blessed them more. And he enabled them to be fruitful and to multiply. And, and, and before that even, here's Adam. He doesn't recognize that he's alone. But God in his grace, as we talked about last week, slowly shows Adam the need that God saw all along. God knew it was not good for man to be alone, but Adam didn't know yet. So he marches the animals in front of him, right? And God in his grace creates a woman that is perfectly suited 
to be Adam's helper. We talked about how that wasn't a demeaning title. That's the title that they use in the Hebrew for a military ally. And it wasn't just a third party like us looking at God's goodness in that moment. Do you remember what Adam said? Look at chapter number two. In verse 23, Adam is so overjoyed, he literally busts out in a poem. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's the God that Adam serves. In the midst of all that generosity, God gave Adam one dominant command in chapter two, verse 16. Of every tree of the garden, you could freely eat. But verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God says, clearly there are consequences. And what we find in verse number six is this man who was made to be a son of God, made to be a servant king, given every resource he could have ever needed, placed within the sanctuary of God with perfect fellowship with God, walking in the garden with God, provided a wife who is perfectly suited to him, and he throws it all away. Verses six, look at chapter three, verse six. It's very subtle, but the end of this whole thing, Eve takes of the fruit, and it says she gave also under a husband with her, and he did eat. You know what the saddest part of all this is? Is that the very man who should have stopped the sin stood by and participated in it. The first Adam failed his responsibilities. He failed as a son of God that should reflect God's glory. He failed as a king who would rule over God's earth. And he stood by in verse number one. He stood there and watched while one of God's creatures trash-talked his perfect creator. Adam was created to make sure all of creation was functioning to bring glory to God, but then Adam tries to be like God. Adam was supposed to lead his wife, as verse number 17 indicates to us, but instead his wife followed the serpent and Adam followed his wife. Not only did they doubt God's goodness, but they set aside the order and the structure that God gave the first home. And it shouldn't surprise us that when they rebelled against a good God who gave them clear warnings of the consequences that would follow, that when they took part in this false advertising scheme, they didn't get the wings they were promised. All they received was massive disappointment in verse number seven. What's interesting to me is that Satan's promises were half true. What did Satan say in verse number five? He said that in the day you eat the fruit, your eyes shall be open. And their eyes are open in verse number seven, but they're not open with a perfect knowledge of a God. They're open to their own shame. Look at verse seven. And the eyes of them were both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now chapter two, verse 25 says that they were naked and not ashamed. And so Moses is trying to get us to see that in exchange for their sin, they received shame. 
See, here's the reality, church family. Sin always promises satisfaction, but it always delivers shame. And like Adam, we do a lot of things to cover up that shame. You see in verse number seven, they sewed fig leaves. They were trying to fix the shame that sin brought them. They couldn't reverse it, but they were trying to cover it. And we try to cover our shame too. Our culture tries to fix shame by saying, let's just be proud of sin instead of being ashamed of our sin. We try to fix our shame by medicating our hurts with drugs or alcohol or something like that. We try to fix our shame by blaming other people, which is about to happen a few verses later. We try to fix our shame by distracting ourselves in a culture of endless distraction and entertainment. Why do we fall for this so often? We fall for the schemes of Satan because the promises sin makes to us are often half true. But as you read verse number seven, you can't help but think false advertising. And I don't think I have to elaborate much further for all of us to recognize that every time sin happens, it's just a big letdown. The Bible's even honest with us, isn't it? It says that sin has pleasure for a season. So the reality may be that in the midst of your sin, you may not feel the shame or the disappointment of sin, but the Bible promises that the day always comes. Yeah, there may be pleasure for a season, but that season will end and it will lead to shame or disappointment. You might say, well, this is kind of a downer of a message, Pastor Mike. What's up with that? I mean, we all sin. We all have shame. Adam's a loser husband who can't stand up against Satan and the serpent. But friend, what I want you to see in this passage is that the failure of the first Adam points us to the victory of the last one. Turn over to Romans chapter number five. And I want you to see the deliverance from sin that God has promised to us. Because as Paul is writing about sin, he sees in Adam a shadow of a better Adam. The very passage in Genesis 3 that describes sin's origins provides a hint of sin's defeat. And if you and I want to defeat sin, it doesn't happen through our own self-effort. We, all we've got is fig leaves. But if we want to defeat sin, it comes by recognizing the deliverance that the last Adam has given to us through his victory on the cross. Look at uh, Romans chapter number 5, verse number 14. It shows this consequence that is echoing throughout history. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or the similarity of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now look at verse 19. How is he a figure? For as by one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. Adam lost to sin in a garden. But it was in a garden that Jesus Christ overcame temptation. 
Adam followed his bride into sin, but Christ delivers his bride from sin. Sin entered the world by Adam's single decisive moment of sin, but sin is defeated by Christ's single decisive moment of sacrifice. Adam's sin brought death. Christ's death defeated sin. Friend, the sin of Adam in this passage points us to the later Adam that delivers us from the very sin the first one committed. And if you and I hope to defeat the false advertising of sin, you and I must believe in Christ and be empowered by him to victory. Friend, if you want to overcome sin, it boils down to one thing and one thing alone. You cannot overcome sin unless you are joined to, unless you are empowered by, and you are saved by Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Because the reality is, if you try and fix it on your own, you'll fall into the same ditch as the first Adam did. And all of us can testify this morning, that's what we do, isn't it? I'm going to be better this time. I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna have a process. I'm gonna avoid this place and avoid that place and stop looking at these things and put my filter on and I'll avoid sin. No, friend, you won't because in your own power, you will make the same mistake as the first Adam did. You need the power of the one who came to save you from sin. And the only way that you can receive Christ's power is by believing in his name and repenting of your sins. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And Christian, it's only in your union to Christ that you can find deliverance from your sin. That as you walk with him, in the same way Adam should have been, as you walk with him, as you walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Christian, this morning, if you want to overcome sin, it's not about your processes and your procedures as much as it's about the person of Jesus Christ and walking with him and loving him and reading his word and spending time with him in prayer. Maybe if Adam and Eve weren't so disconnected from God, they wouldn't have fallen to the temptation of the serpent. And I have a feeling this morning there's some Christians that may be saved by the blood of Christ, but they're disconnected. They're walking not with Christ in the garden. They're walking on their own so they can encounter the serpent again. Friend, if you're disconnected from Christ, come back to him. Walk with him again. And live under his protection and find deliverance from your sin. The hope of our deliverance comes by the victory that is offered in Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning if there's somebody who's never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the second Adam. If there's never been a time in your life where you came to recognize that his death and resurrection is the perfect payment for your sins. There's never been a time when you've repented of those sins and trusted in him and received his grace into your life. You recognize you can do that at any time, at any moment. You can call upon him, and the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're a Christian this morning, can I just encourage you, rather than fighting temptation on your own, separated from God, start walking with him again. Start being connected to the one who had victory over sin so that you can share in that victory. Know him better. 
Walk with him closer. Love him more. And the Bible says that as we walk with him, we are changed into his image. Meaning that the more we spend time with Christ, the more we share in his victory and in his character and in his holiness. That's our encouragement this morning. What I believe is that if God is good enough to speak to us, we ought to be kind enough to respond back to him. And I hope and I trust that through his word, God has spoken to you this morning. And so what I wanna invite you to do for just the next few moments is to respond back to him. I reckon there's some Christians this morning who have to deal with their sin. The Bible says those who confess and forsake their sins shall receive mercy. Christian, you don't receive mercy by running from your sin and running away from God. You receive mercy by confessing and forsaking it. Spend time in the presence of God this morning confessing your sins to him. We need to have a routine in our life where we do that. For some of you, you need to spend some time walking with the second Adam today. Spend some time in prayer with him. Meditate on his goodness to you. Ask for his help that tomorrow you'll open, you'll open up your Bible and walk with him again. And if there's someone here who needs to call upon Christ and you can do that in the moments to follow, or you can come talk to me after the service. I'd love to share Christ with you. So at this time, I want to invite all of our congregation to bow their heads, close their eyes, and spend some time in response to the message this morning. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word. As the piano plays, let's spend some time in private prayer, confession, and meditation before the Lord as we prepare for the baptism to follow.